Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. All right. Good morning, everybody. Woo! Thank you so much for taking time today to come and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so glad you guys are here. And even if you're here and you're not quite convinced of that just yet, we are so glad you are here joining us online, live in person. So thankful that you're a part of this service this morning. Now, before I dive into our Easter message 2022 today, I want to give you a couple of quick announcements about next weekend, the 24th of uh, April, we're going to be launching a brand new series entitled Reassemble, right? Reassembly Required. It's kind of a, we're calling it Beginner's Guide on Repairing Broken Relationships. So if you've ever had one of those moments where you're kind of at an impasse, I don't really know what to do with this relationship. I don't even know if I ever want to talk to her again or him. I don't know really. This is a relationship series to kind of help you to know how to move forward regardless of what kind of relationship it is. It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship, any kind of relationship. This will apply. We're going to talk about really kind of taking the principles of the resurrection. How do we apply it to a relationship that needs to be resuscitated, okay? And maybe you're scared to resuscitate it, okay? But we need to talk about that. What does that look like and how do we move forward? Okay, so we'll talk about that next week. Now, the last several weeks, we've been in this series entitled Unsettled, where we've been talking about this idea that over the last couple of years, especially, we have all been unsettled, not just in our faith, but in almost every area of life. We have been sort of trying to search to find our, our footing and kind of get going again. And and with all of that, a lot of questions have been asked by a lot of people, and, and questions, doubts, pushback, objections to Christianity. And here's the tragedy with that, that many times people don't feel free to bring those questions and doubts and objections to church. They think that's the last place you should bring those things. Well, he, we here at Brazos Fellowship want to change that. We want to give you a place to bring those questions, those doubts those pushbacks that you have. And we have a group that's launching next week called the Explore Group. Now, it's going to be on the fourth floor of our tower over here. If you've never been on the fourth floor, beautiful view up there. So that's a bonus on top of that. But I want to encourage you, if you're interested in this class at all, it's going to be at 11 a.m. next, starting next Sunday. It'll go for five weeks. And it, basically what you do is go on our website, on our webpage. There's a little block there that says Explore Group. Click on that and get all the information. And you can register for the class. Some of you here who can hear my voice, both online, and here in person need to say yes to this class. We have seen people in similar classes like this as we've offered them in the past. It was a game changer for their faith. It really helped them to figure out how do I even move forward with all these questions and doubts. And it really kind of helps you to kind of go, okay, now I get, I can see a way forward. I can see what, what needs to happen next. So just encourage you, please take a moment Check that out on our website and sign up for it and check it out starting next weekend. I, I really believe you'll be glad you did. So that's starting next weekend. Today, 
or Easter service, we're going to sort of have the crescendo or the, the finishing message on this series, um, Unsettled. And we started this entire series by asking the question, I was really asking you, have you ever felt unsettled in your faith? And I think we could all like honestly say yes, especially these last couple of years. It's, it's definitely caused us to feel like, man, I'm being challenged in some ways I've never been challenged before. And maybe it's through friendships or family members and different people that you know that are adopting certain lifestyle choices, different things, and it's caused you to question a whole lot of things. But I just want to tell you that if you've been in that kind of questioning, doubting, unsettled mode, you are in good company. We have four conversations recorded for us after the resurrection of Jesus that he has one-on-one -on -one with individual people and all four of these people later in life became incredible followers of Jesus Christ, but at the time were very unsettled in their faith. And in each one of these, Jesus addresses another common misconception about faith that we all, I mean all of us, will face at some time or another in our faith with God. And so we have, through the, the last couple of weeks, the first conversation that Jesus had after the resurrection was with Mary Magdalene. We, we did that the first week. And then we looked at Thomas and his doubts. What did Jesus do with his doubt? Last week, we looked at Peter and his denial of Jesus. And when Jesus finally dealt with that, he got down to the kernel issue that was going on in Peter's heart. And if you are interested in those, you can go back and check them out on our website. Today, we're going to turn our focus to maybe one of the most famous Christians of all time, Paul, who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, but later became the Apostle Paul, okay? Now, as I talk about the Apostle Paul, let me just say that outside of Jesus himself, there is no human being who has ever lived that more shaped the history of Christianity than Paul. He's it. And even when we rewind the tape and go all the way back before he was a Christian, here's the interesting thing about Paul. He was a religious guy, deeply religious guy, even before he was a Christian. He grew up Jewish and was determined to be a leader in the Jude you know, uh, Jewish faith. And so he got the finest theological education that was available through the famous Gamaliel, the brilliant kind of thought leader of his day, and Paul was one of his star students who was known as Saul back in that day. And what was interesting about Saul at that time is that he became a Pharisee, which was kind of the ruling class among the, the Jewish community, and he vehemently hated the Christian movement. He saw it as a major threat to Judaism. So, he persecuted without mercy the Christian church in the first century. And what this is really kind of fascinating because unbeknownst to him, even before he was a Christian, his persecution of the early church is what caused the church in Jerusalem to finally obey the command of Jesus to take this gospel, this good news, into all of the world until they finally got so much persecution and heat in Jerusalem, they finally were like, okay, let's, uh, let's, maybe we should all vacate, leave town. And they went to the outside outlying communities and began to share their faith more. So Paul, used, uh, Paul was used by God even before he became a Christian. And it was more than just great 
um, oratory or preaching of the gospel that spread the faith of Jesus, that really kind of mushroomed the number of followers of Jesus. You need to understand, historians and sociologists would say that the, the evidence for the growth of the first century Christian movement really was built on three pillars. The first one was the empty tomb. There was an undeniable empty tomb of Jesus. And still to this day, even non-Christian historians would say there was clearly an empty tomb of Jesus. It, it's indisputable, irrefutable. Like there's evidence to show historically that we can bank on. The next one was there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness testimonies of people who had seen, encountered, talked to the resurrected Jesus. And some people try to, you know, excuse that one away. Say, oh, no, that was kind of a, a, a group hallucination. They looked up on the hill and they're like, does that look like Jesus up there? Oh, I think it's Jesus. No, it wasn't like a single time event like that. They talked to him. He taught them. He ate with them. They physically interacted with him. They touched him. And it happened over and over. Some the meetings were in the morning, some were in the evening, some were during the day, some were by the lake, some were in the city, some were in behind closed doors, some were he he had all kinds of in, encounters and interactions with lots and lots of people. And uh, finally, the final of the three pillars is the inexplicable rise of the early church. That the number of followers of Jesus Christ that not only said, I believe this, but were willing to die for their faith. I think that's important for us to remember. It's very different than the American version of Christianity today. In the Roman um, Empire at that time, for you to claim Christianity, the emperor... The, uh, you know, Pharaoh, uh, pardon me, the emperor uh, was looking at that as competition because he was seen by his people as a god. And so for you to claim some other god you're following, then, you know, that's treason and you could be killed for that. And they were killed for that. But what was interesting is in the first hundred years of Christianity, once it was birthed after the, the resurrection of Jesus, that we see the number of Christians growing to the hundreds of thousands. And many historians say that within the first 300 years of Christianity's ex existence, that the number of Christians worldwide had grown to over 30 million people. And historians and sociologists, you do not get the kind of sociological shift we see in history without hard, irrefutable evidence that people could go to and say, look, here's the empty tomb. Hey, look, let me introduce you to this, these people over here who met and saw and witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And over and over again, people had encounters with God that transcended this idea that, well, this movement started, the leader died, and they just tried to kick it back off again. He said, movements don't work like that. If the, the leader wasn't proven to have come back from the dead, how do you explain? It's inexplicable. As a matter of fact, uh, Dr. N.T. Wright, there's lots of great books, by the way, that I could point to to give you some historical evidence around the resurrection, but one of the best I want to share, if I could pick one, is The Resurrection of the Son of God by Dr. N.T. Wright. And he claims in his book that 
if we try to pluck the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of history and explain all that happened without that resurrection, we find ourselves not doing history, but we find ourselves doing science fiction. He said, it just doesn't, we're not doing history anymore. We're actually just sort of making up things to try to satisfy our preferences rather than respecting what actually happened in history. And I just, I say all that to say, this is a great place to dive in deeper if you are somebody who say, I'd really like to look at deeper into the history. Now, I'll warn you, that book's about 900 pages, but it's very thorough. It will help you to understand working from extra-biblical material towards the biblical sources and how we can trust them. So before, uh, so with that said, let's dive into this conversation that happened, and it's kind of the one that's often forgotten of the resurrection conversations between Jesus and someone because it happened five years after the resurrection, but it happened with Saul as he's on his way. This kind of speaks to his zealous passion to stop the Christian movement. He's willing to take on the assignment nobody else wanted, a 175-mile journey on foot from Jerusalem up to Damascus. He's like, sign me up, I'll do it. Paul will take it on. Saul will take it on. And this is what he did. And what happened on that road to Damascus not only changed his life, but it changed the course of history. Let's take a look together, starting in Acts, Acts short for Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1. And here's what we're told. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus. This was to give him the authority to go to Damascus and to be able to round up all those people who are Christians and bring them back and arrest them. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way is what they called the Christian movement back then. It was one of the first names that were given for the Christian movement. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, let me just say, if you're somebody here today that's saying, I've got questions, I've got doubts, I've got some objections about Christianity, the Apostle Paul, at this moment of his life and all the years prior, he would say, I feel you, relatable, all right? I get you, I feel the same way. He had lots of objections to Christianity, but when he asked the, that, in that moment, when he asked the question, who are you, Lord? The answer he got to that question rocked his world so big time that it upended his worldview in a way that can't be overstated. It was insane how it changed his world because the, the answer that he heard, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wait, what? No, surely not. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a really good guy, God. I'm, I got it all together. I'm, I'm working for you, not against you. No, that, this can't be. You see, in Paul's mind, 
he felt like he had lots of good reasons not to believe in Christianity. First of all, he would say, you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew scriptures that he would have grown up with, he would say, the Bible teaches there is one God. And look at these followers of Jesus. They are praying to him. They are worshiping him as if he were God. I, I don't understand this. And he says, in, in the Old Testament prophets who prophesied about the Messiah, like Isaiah, in places like Isaiah chapter 11, would say, when the Messiah comes, this anointed one that God's going to use to bring his salvation to the world, when he comes, he will not only be a descendant of King David, but that he would also, he's going to round up and he is going to unite all the nations of the world that he will be able to draw all the nations to himself first, and second of all, that he will defeat all of their enemies. So again, in Paul's mind, along with many of the Jewish leaders of his day, they would have thought, nobody rounds up, nobody unites and joins together the nations unless they have a massive political power, and they cannot defeat enemies unless they have massive military power. And he's like, I'm looking at Jesus. He never had office of any kind. He didn't have political power. He didn't have military power. He died on a Roman cross. He couldn't. How could he be the Messiah? It seems impossible in my mind, Paul would say. And he would say, besides, the Old Testament is explicitly clear about this, that anyone who dies on a tree could be interpreted, uh, translated from the Hebrew, a pole or a cross is cursed of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, and Paul would say, and besides, you know who wrote this? Moses! Moses wrote this under God's inspiration. He would say, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, for a hanged man is cursed by God. He goes, there it is, right there. And Jesus didn't just die. He died a shameful death of a criminal. It seems clear that God rejected him. He abandoned him. He didn't elevate and affirm him as the messianic king. The apostle Paul would say, I have lots of reasons to reject this Christian movement. But here is the kicker, ladies and gentlemen. After this road to Damascus experience, we're told Paul was stricken blind for three days. He was led by hand back into the city of Damascus, and something happens over those three days. A transformation in the way he's thinking. He's thinking, if Jesus is risen, if I just spoke to God in heaven, this radically shifts everything I've ever thought. Three days later, we're told, in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, he is standing up, preaching in the synagogues in Damascus with the Old Testament that you have in your hands, and he is preaching the message that Jesus is the Son of God. Woo! You want to talk about radical shift in one guy in three days. And it goes on to say in a couple of verses later that he confounded the Jewish leaders of the city, that he continued to explain. He got stronger by the day as he poured over the scriptures. He explained how Jesus, not only is the Son of God, but that he is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. 
And he proved it over and over again. And here's what I'd like to do for you. I'd like us to use Paul's New Testament letters as a guide, and I want to retrace his thinking for just a minute. Because for me, it was one of those like light coming on. Oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. And I wanted to share it with you this Easter. I hope it means a lot to you. But think about it for just a second from Paul's perspective. He's thinking of Jesus. He looks at Jesus' life. He's saying, well, he's rejected. He's cursed, right? But yet, I just encountered the risen Jesus. So he is risen and he is vindicated by God. So what does that mean? This is really important questions that we ought to all be asking. What does that mean? So Paul comes to the conclusion, he must not be dying for himself, he's dying for someone else. Oh, okay. So he's taking on this curse and this rejection for another person. Who could that be? Who is the other person? And Paul comes to the conclusion, could it be that Jesus is dying and taking on the curse and the rejection, the curse of the law and the rejection that comes with sin for us in our place? We see it come out in his letter. When he wrote the letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And there's this poetic justice kind of moment that was so brutal but so beautiful at the same time if we looked at last week with Peter when he denied Jesus the three times remember the last of the three times he literally calls down curses on Jesus trying to convince the crowd and onlookers that he's trying to disassociate himself with Jesus to such a degree I'm literally going to curse him curse him and in a very real sense, because of our sin, every one of us have done that to Jesus. And he says, I'll take it. I'll take the curse for you that goes with sin. I will take the fact that you cannot live up to the law. You cannot live up to the perfection of the moral code. And I will give you forgiveness instead. You see, it's so beautiful that in this moment, uh, Paul begins to realize when he's looking at what is Isaiah saying about this, this, this Messiah, that he came, he was one of great strength. He is one who will judge the world. Isaiah is really clear about this. He will judge all of the world. But then Isaiah is also talking about this suffering servant. And still to this day, Jewish people struggle with passages like Isaiah 52 and 53. Who is he talking about here? And anytime you watch it, like on YouTube or somewhere, you, you see a Jewish rabbi who's been converted to Christianity, they will many times say, I finally understood who the prophet Isaiah was talking about. It was Jesus Christ, son of the living God. I missed it all these years. He's, Isaiah writes, chapter 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, get this, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Beautiful. And Paul comes away saying, could it be that the messianic king and the suffering servant are one and the same? Maybe it's two sides to the same person. I've missed it all this time. 
is so beautifully written about in places in Paul's writings, like when he writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, where he says this, and he's talking about Jesus, he being found in appearance as a man. He just finished talking about the in every way is equal to God, but he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he goes on to write, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul knew it. He figured it out. He's the fulfillment. He's the culmination of all of these promises. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And, and I'm, I'm sure that there was a time where Paul was thinking about, well, what about this entire sacrificial system that was set up in the Old Testament that was still going on in the temple? That every day they're killing these animals and spilling their blood to be a remission or a forgiveness of sins for the Israelite people. But it's never been enough. Like no amount of animal blood will ever fully, once and for all, take care of the sins of humanity. And in his mind, and, and he had just heard two, two chapters prior, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr for the Christian faith, had stood up publicly and proclaimed, and this made the Jews so mad, that Jesus, when he came, he made your sacrificial system obsolete. We don't need it anymore because we've got Jesus. And Paul is standing there, Saul at the time, holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. But now he's realizing Stephen was right. He spoke the truth of God, and I didn't recognize it, but it's true. That's what happened, that this entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was simply a pointer that God was getting us ready. It was pointing to the ultimate lamb of God, the Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, here's Paul once again writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once and for all, for all people, all who believe, who place faith in him, can be set free. To use Jesus' language, you no longer have to be slaves to sin. You can be free. That freedom has come through Jesus Christ. There's an Old Testament promise. The father of the nation of Israel, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God comes to Abraham when he's first calling him, and he says, through one of your descendants, I will bless the nations of the world, that every nation will be touched through the blessing I'm going to bring through this single descendant. Paul had to think, could it be that God is fulfilling that promise he made all those thousands of years ago, now through his son, Jesus Christ? And he tells us as much, going back to the letter in Galatians. Chapter 3, now verse 14, let's look at this together. He, talking about Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I love it. He's saying, you don't just get forgiven when you come to Christ. You get the indwelling spirit of Almighty God with you always. 
fulfilling the promise that Jesus said, Behold, I will be with you always to the very end of the age until I return, and then I will be with you forever in an even multiplied greater way. Powerful, beautiful. See, the Apostle Paul, once he finally grasped the resurrection, it forced him to reread and to reinterpret the entire Bible with a Christ-centered structure and framework. Completely different. And he had to do what I want to challenge you to do today. He had to start looking at the Bible not as, oh, this is a really nice collection of Aesop's fables that teach us how to live a good life. That's not it. It is a single coercive, <laughs> it's a single story that is, <laughs> it's a single narrative of the history true story of God and how he's bringing his salvation into the world, right? Beautiful, and it crescendos at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beautiful, and when Paul finally comes to this place, once he realizes Jesus is risen, then all of a sudden, it changes the way he looks at the Bible. It changes the way he looks at himself. It changes the way he looks at the world. It changes everything, and in that moment, Paul didn't, I'm sure, get all of his questions answered, all of his doubts resolved, all of his pushback addressed, but he came to this place of saying, once I understood the resurrection of Jesus, I knew that even though I didn't have all the answers to all my questions, I knew there were answers to my questions. And if I would just keep pursuing, God would be faithful and show those to me. In the same way, ladies and gentlemen, that, that the Apostle Paul was able to move forward in faith, despite his doubts, his questions, his objections, is the same way you and I move forward today. When we have unsettled moments, when we have questions, we can move forward in the same way. Here's a, something I want you to think about. Think about the objections that you have to Christianity. What are your objections? What are your pushbacks, your doubts, your questions? Your, what are those things? Or maybe somebody that you love that you say, they constantly tell you, I got an issue with, I got an issue with, I got an issue with. What are those things? Now, here's the follow-up question. Do any of these things mean that Jesus could not have risen from the dead? No. Like 99.9% .9 of those objections, no. It doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't raise from the dead. And this is the question we have to be, we must be asking, that we need to look at the evidence thoroughly, really look at it, honestly look at it. Because all of our objections hang on this one issue. Let me explain what I mean by that. If Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. What does it matter what the Bible says about anything else? Who cares? If that one thing isn't true, we don't need to pay attention to the rest of it. We are a faith that is, that is hung on this one moment in time. It is a historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament points to it. And all of the New Testament turns around and points back to it that it is the pivotal moment in human history that we all need to come to a place of grappling with. What are we going to do with this? 
what am I going to do with Jesus in his resurrection? And when we come to that place of admitting, yes, Jesus resurrected from the dead, then we have to also admit that the Bible and its gospel is true. And though we might not have all the answers to all of our questions and objections just yet, we can move forward with confidence knowing that, good, that answers do exist, that answers to those questions do exist, and you can find them. And there are other believers around you that have written books and, and in this church that have struggled and grappled with the same questions you have right now, and we can help each other to guide through this line, this minefield of questions and doubts. Now, at that very end of the conversation between Jesus and Paul, right there on the road to Damascus, he says, now here's what I want you to do, Paul. I want you to get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And what did Paul do? He did exactly what Jesus said. In other words, with his actions, he says, what, do you, what would you have me do, Lord? I will follow what you say. You have risen, and I don't know all the answers to all my questions, but I'm going to start to follow you. And I want to encourage you today, you can do the exact same thing, that you can begin right where you are, just saying, okay, this is scary. This is going to push me out of my comfort zone. But as you know, all growth is outside the comfort zone, right? Spiritually included. Faith growth happens when we step out and trust God. And right now, for many of you, Jesus is speaking to your heart in a unique way where you know it's happening right now. Where you, it's time for you to have the courage to say, what would you have me do, Lord? And for some of you, the thing he would have you do is open up your life and say, Jesus, would you come in and forgive my sin? Cleanse me and be the Lord of my life. Begin to lead me. Because Jesus' ultimate goal for Paul and Peter and Thomas and Mary Magdalene all the way through is come and follow me and I will show you what you must do. Come and follow me and I will show you the life everlasting, the abundant life. But if you don't choose to follow me, don't gripe later that you didn't have the abundant life. <laughs> Those go together. And so I just want to encourage you right now, would you have the courage, wherever you are in your spiritual life right now, maybe it's beginning a relationship with Jesus for the first time. You've never done that. You've been to church. You've been to services like this many times, but you have never just said, okay, this is it. God, I'm giving you everything I got. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to step out. Today is the day for some of you to do that. Others of you, you have done that, and now it's time to trust him with some areas that you've said, yeah, you can have this over here, God, but not this. <laughs> no, I'm holding on to this. It's a little idol. It's a little addiction. It's a little, a little thing that you got that you won't surrender, but it's the very thing that is holding you back. You want to have a breakthrough with God? You've got to be willing to bring that to him. And I want to just ask you right now, as we get ready to pray, would you have the courage to say, what would you have me do, Lord? Jesus, in light of your resurrection, in light of your resurrection, what would you have me do, Lord? And that you would just give him your yes. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com.
Brazosfellowship.com. That's Brazosfellowship.com.